This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Stephen Kocher? So first I'll look at the background in this case. I'll move to the timeline of the disappearance, and then I'll offer my analysis. Stephen Kocher was born in Amarillo, Texas on November 1, 1979. He had three siblings. He was raised in the Mormon church. Stephen was active in the Boy Scouts. He would eventually reach the level of Eagle Scout. He graduated from high school in 1998 and would earn a degree in communications from the University of Utah in 2002. Stephen traveled to Brazil as a missionary. He even learned to speak Portuguese. After this, he went to work for a small newspaper in the town of Bountiful, Utah. Then in 2007, he took an overnight job with the digital advertising division of the Salt Lake Tribune. He grew tired of that shift and was struggling with the winter temperatures, so he moved to St. George. This is in southwest Utah. It was warmer there. He found a job there with an internet advertising company, but they let him go soon after he arrived. He was having trouble finding new employment. He found part-time work handing out flyers for a local window washing company, but that job didn't pay very well. His grandmother sent him a check in October of 2009. He never cashed it. He wanted to fix his problems by himself. Stephen was three months behind on his rent by December of 2009. When his father offered him financial assistance, Stephen became so upset with him, he hung up on him. But the next day, he texted his father and apologized. Stephen said that he wanted to work things out on his own. The power company was threatening to cut off Stephen's electric because he had failed to pay the bill. So we see the financial stressors were really closing in on Stephen. Stephen went on a road trip early on December 10, 2009. Driving his 2003 Chevrolet Cavalier, he headed north on Interstate 15 toward Salt Lake City. He used his debit card to buy gasoline, traveled west on Interstate 80, and arrived in West Wendover, Nevada. Here he purchased more gasoline. He continued to the Ruby Valley Ranch, which was about another 100 miles. Earlier in his life, Stephen had dated a woman named Anne-Marie Neff. Her family owned that ranch. Stephen told Anne-Marie's parents that he had stopped by to see her. He had not contacted anybody about his plan. He was there unannounced. Anne-Marie was not there, but her parents still served him lunch. So they were surprised to see him, but I guess they wanted to be polite. He told them that he was going to continue on to Sacramento, California to visit family but he was concerned about approaching inclement weather. Two hours later, he left the ranch, returning to St. George, Utah, along the same route he traveled to get to Nevada. He purchased gas in Salt Lake City and Springville and had dinner in the town of Nephi. He had driven about 1,100 miles total on his journey. During the day of his journey, he talked with his mother on the phone. He did not mention his trip, but his mother said that he was upbeat about employment possibilities and was looking forward to Christmas. He and his mother talked about him making the trip to Bountiful to be with his family for the holidays. Moving to the next day, 
December 11, 2009, Stephen was at his job handing out flyers when he came across two girls that had been locked out of the apartment of their family. He tried to assist the girls. He called their mother, but she did not answer. He then looked for someone who could take the girls in until one of the family members showed up. Stephen talked to a bishop from his church who told Stephen that he would have a job ready for him starting in January 2010. The bishop said Stephen had a positive tone. On the next day, December 12, Stephen embarked on another road trip. He traveled to Overton, Nevada in the morning and would end up in Mesquite, Nevada by the evening. There he would buy gasoline and food at a convenience store. Three hours later, he was at a Kmart near St. George. He purchased cookies and a baby's bib. It's believed that Stephen bought those items as Christmas gifts. Stephen returned to his apartment at about 10 p.m., but would leave again only half an hour later. It's not clear if he returned to his apartment again. No one saw him return, but that doesn't mean he did not. Now moving to the timeline of the disappearance. We go to the next day, December 13, 2009. A friend and fellow church member named Greg Webb called Stephen that morning. Greg said that he was on his way back from Las Vegas and was worried he would not make it to St. George, Utah for the start of a service at 11 a.m. Apparently, both Stephen and Greg were supposed to attend that service. Greg wanted to know if Stephen could run the service for him. Stephen said that he, too, was in the Las Vegas area, but he would return to St. George if Greg really needed him to. Greg told him to just continue with whatever he was doing. He would try to make it back on time. Later in the morning, another church member called to ask Stephen to add something to the announcements for a 1 p.m. service. Stephen informed him that he would not be there for the service, which was surprising to the church member, as Stephen had always informed people well in advance when he wasn't going to attend a meeting. Moving to 11.54 a.m., we see that Stephen's car was captured on surveillance video driving in a cul-de-sac in a retirement community in Henderson, Nevada. At noon, just six minutes later, a person believed to be Stephen was seen walking on the sidewalk carrying something in his hand. It may have been a folder. Another camera would catch him as he continued to walk. This was the last time he would ever be seen. Five hours later, his cell phone pinged a tower 10 miles northeast. At 7 p.m., it pinged another tower two miles further north. On December 14, early in the morning, it pinged a tower two miles to the north of the last position. An hour later, the phone was used to check Stephen's voicemail. The phone would stay near that tower for two days, after which there would be no more activity. Stephen was reported missing after his vehicle was found abandoned. His family searched all over the Las Vegas area, as did the authorities sometime later. No trace of Stephen Kocher was ever found. Now moving to my analysis. I had a number of requests for this case after I released my video on the Susan Powell case. It is believed that Joshua Powell, her husband, was involved in her disappearance. Joshua suggested that Stephen Kocher had run off with Susan Powell. After all, the disappearances of Stephen and Susan were only about a week apart. I'm not aware of any evidence that connects the two cases. I think Joshua Powell was just taking advantage of a coincidence to try to escape responsibility. I don't think the two cases are related at all. And now, gambling terms. Snake eyes. Rolling ones with a pair of dice. Double down. 
doubling the original bet for one more card. Bad beat, when your strong hand gets beat. Illegal gambling can put you at risk. Protect our communities. Play legit and gamble only where it's legal. Learn more now at playlegitco.com. A message from the Colorado Division of Gaming. Gambling problem? Call or text 1-800-GAMBLER. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. So what happened to Stephen Coucher? Stephen seemingly disappeared right off of the street. His internet search history didn't reveal anything out of the ordinary. None of his assets have ever been accessed, like bank accounts or anything else. He had a diary where he talked about how he was single and had money problems, but he also indicated that he was confident those two issues would resolve shortly. His apartment was neat. There was plenty of food in it. A blanket and pillows were found in his vehicle, suggesting perhaps he had slept there at some point or was intending to sleep there in the future. His family believed that Stephen was in Henderson looking for a job. This would explain why he was carrying what looked like a folder. Perhaps it contained his resume. In the video surveillance, Stephen appears to be walking intentionally, like he knew where he was going. He was not lost or uncertain. The timing also makes it seem like he was going to some type of appointment, like a job interview. He exited his car right at noon. Nothing in his internet search history suggested where he was going that day. It's not clear how he arranged that meeting, if that, in fact, was a meeting. The surveillance footage did not capture which house Stephen entered, assuming he entered any house. The police put a lot of energy into one particular house. They made many attempts to talk to the people who lived there, a neighbor reported that there was suspicious activity at the house on the day Stephen went missing, and the residents of the house moved away. What about all of Stephen's unexplained travel? Stephen's family believed that he may have been traveling to conduct research on his ancestors, like going to cemeteries. He was looking for gravestones. But this is really just a theory. The travel right before his death was actually, I think, quite mysterious. Some have suggested that perhaps Stephen was involved in some type of illegal activity, like he was driving around to pick up and deliver drugs. The police brought in dogs trained to detect drugs to inspect Stephen's car. They found nothing, but of course Stephen could have been dealing in prescription medication, like illegally obtained prescription medication. With all this in mind, let's take a look at the theories about what could have happened in this case. Theory number one. Stephen just walked away from his life. He is still out there, alive, somewhere. In the modern age, this is very hard to do, especially without extensive planning and resources. Where would he have gone? How would he have survived? This theory offers an unlikely explanation. Theory number two, somewhere in the neighborhood where he parked his car or nearby, he encountered one or more criminals. They murdered him and disposed of his body. Stephen appeared to be law-abiding, but perhaps he was getting into some illegal activities. This would explain his travel. He was naive. He did not understand how dangerous criminals could be. 
he was an easy target. One difficulty with this theory is that Stephen's phone was used to check his voicemail the next day. His landlord had left him a message. Why would somebody murder him and then check his voicemail? Although, of course, he could have been murdered after he checked his voicemail. Another question would be, why would somebody kill him and then leave his phone on until it ran out of battery power? A second difficulty with this theory is motive. Maybe Stephen was carrying money from illicit transactions or something, but available evidence seems to indicate he didn't have anything. These criminals were foolish enough to murder somebody for nothing, but sophisticated enough to hide his body so that it was never found. It seems a bit inconsistent. The third difficulty with this theory is that Stephen was last seen in a retirement community. Typically, retirees are not active in criminal behavior and do not act impulsively. Statistically, if you look at crimes committed by men, only 1% of crimes are committed by men over the age of 65. Even criminals have to slow down at some point. This is why nobody's complaining about the geriatric delinquency problem. There isn't one. I actually did find a story on a retiree gang that was selling a fake substitute for Viagra. I think eventually, of course, the gang failed, as they just couldn't keep it up. Moving to theory number three. Depressed from his financial and romantic failures, Stephen walked for several miles, which explains why his phone appeared to be moving for several hours consistent with walking speed. He eventually brought an end to his own life. There are a few reasons he may have done this. For example, he had just been rejected by whoever he was meeting, like it was a job interview and he was unsuccessful. He just couldn't handle one more rejection. It could have been that the voicemail from the landlord was the straw that broke the camel's back. Was the message a reminder that Stephen was months behind on his rent? Maybe the message contained something more definitive and frightening, like a notification that Stephen was going to be evicted. Christmas time was approaching, and he had promised to spend time with his family. Maybe he didn't want to deal with the humiliation. He felt like a failure. He didn't want to face them. Stephen was lonely. He wanted a romantic partner, but had not been successful in finding one. In addition, his prospects may have been diminished by his financial status. Stephen had turned 30 just over a month before his disappearance. Maybe for him, this was a critical milestone for expectations that he did not live up to. I believe this theory is the most likely among the three theories I've talked about here. Stephen was driving a lot, spending money on gasoline, even though he didn't have a lot of money. He could have been wandering and looking for a sense of purpose, taking some time to think about life, looking to come to peace with his time on earth, visiting a few places that had special meaning for him. Perhaps this is why he attempted to see his ex-girlfriend unannounced. Maybe he was looking to find or provide closure. Or it could have been that he was hoping they would reunite, which would give him a sense of purpose. When she wasn't there, this was yet another perceived rejection or a message that he should just give up. The reality is that Stephen was headed for a change one way or the other. His lifestyle was unsustainable given his income. He was going to have to move back in with his family or be homeless. There are problems with this theory too, though. This is not a perfect explanation. For example, how did he do it? It could have been something as simple as exposure. Where is his body? There are a lot of rural areas in Nevada. He could have caught a ride with somebody out to the middle of nowhere. Why did he seem so future-oriented, like buying Christmas gifts and being happy 
about an upcoming job, people who are depressed often hide their feelings from others. Moving to my final thoughts, if theory one was true, that is, Stephen just took off and started a new life, then he was truly remarkable. Starting his life over like that would be very difficult to do and have it be undetected. If theory two is true, he ran into a bad element, it's a reminder that the world is a dangerous place. If theory three is true, Stephen brought an end to his own life, it's a reminder that stress has to go somewhere. There's always some type of consequence for stress. Stephen was under a lot of pressure, and he did not see a way out. He did not want to take money from his relatives. He did not want to be a burden. Perhaps this is why his body was never found. That, too, would have been a stressor on his family. It would have been a burden. And he wanted to spare his relatives from that experience. Maybe he believed it was his final act of kindness. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boy's easy opening, smooth pouring container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big